0: From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge, the show that invites scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for an informal conversation about their work. I'm your host, Ted Fox. And if you'd like to keep up with the show in between episodes, you can find us on Twitter, and now Instagram, too. In both spots, we are at With a Side of Pod. Jenny Heisel is an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Defense Management at the Naval Postgraduate School. Her research at the intersection of economics, public policy, and psychology has been covered by The Atlantic, The New York Times, NPR, the Brookings Evidence Speak series, and a number of other outlets. She just received a large grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to study the Department of Defense's parental support policies. A 2007 graduate of Notre Dame, Jenny holds a Master of Public Policy degree from Duke and a Ph.D. in Human Development and Social Policy from Northwestern. Her interdisciplinary expertise has driven her to pursue some really interesting and highly applicable research, not only in the area of parenting, but also education, including on in-person versus online instruction and what impact, if any, school start times have on students' academic performance. In addition, we discussed a paper she has forthcoming in the Journal of Human Resources, focused on how the siblings of teen mobs are affected by the arrival of the baby, a dynamic that hasn't been closely studied to this point. As you would expect these days, our conversation was a virtual one. And that was thanks to Jenny's husband seeing a tweet we sent looking for guests, and then her taking the time to reach out. We're thrilled that she did. Jenny Heisel, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thanks for having me. So we're this is we've been joking about for about 10 minutes now. I'm recording in my wife's walk-in closet. You're in a future nursery, so very glamorous and very official, but we have some really cool research of yours to talk about today, which I, I'm excited about. And I had a chance to go through some of it yesterday. And it seemed to me like the overriding theme was an interest in outcomes. What allows people specifically in an educational and parenting contexts, to perform at their best? And conversely, what can hinder that performance? Is, is that close to how you would describe your work? That's a fantastic way. I should have uh, had you when I was on my job market uh, <laughs> yeah. to summarize it
1: that way. Because I'm really lucky, but also somewhat unique in that my background is not from one particular discipline. I came from an interdisciplinary PhD program. And so I had an advisor who was an economist, but a co-advisor who is a psychologist. And so I have these interests in stress and sleep and family environments uh, that don't necessarily easily fit into one particular uh, disciplinary uh, pillar or box. But it lets me do interesting things and just I think this is an interesting question. What uh, what can I find out about it? Or I think this is a an important policy. How did this affect families and children? And so it frees me a little bit to do research that I find interesting. So I really like my CV just because it's <laughs> there's a, a whole lot uh, a whole lot going on and lets me explore different interests, which is one of the wonderful things about being a professor.
0: Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think one of the things that I noticed in looking at the papers, and because of the way I was going to, the first one I was going to ask you about, I started to write, well, one of your papers that's generated some media attention. And then when I was looking through the list, I was like, oh, a lot of these have generated a lot of media attention. And I think, listeners, as you're listening to this, it does move around from different topics. But you understand why, because these are really real-world, relatable things. And so th- the first one I that I was looking at, it was published in 2016. And you, as you noted in an email to me, it's exceedingly relevant in the era of coronavirus because it compared the benefits of classroom versus online instruction. And yeah. all of us who are doing e-learning at home with our children right now, it's very top of mind. So- well, can you can you walk us through this one, the group that you studied, what you learned about them, and maybe to what degree those results might describe other student populations? Because obviously you're looking at one very specific student population in this study.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that was one down in North Carolina. Uh, so there were a group of eighth graders. So they're advanced, high-performing eighth graders. And if they were in most other counties in the state of North Carolina, these advanced high-performing eighth graders would have been in a regular Algebra one classroom because they're like, you know, high performers, but this particular county didn't offer that for a long time. They had no opportunity for these sort of advanced kids to take any kind of Algebra one until the North Carolina Virtual Public School came along and started offering virtual Algebra one. And so suddenly we had this nice shift into a virtual platform exclusively for these high-performing sort of kids and the distribution of the kids who were taking it then suddenly in this county was exactly the same as the distribution as you'd see in any other county in north carolina except now these kids were specifically on this virtual platform which allowed this nice comparison both across counties and then kind of before versus after within that county so you could see how this change affected those kids And because they were high performers, you'd hope that if anyone was going to succeed in this virtual environment, hopefully these kids uh, would be the, the ones who could stick to it and do it. But unfortunately, what I found was that they scored substantially lower than what you otherwise would have predicted from these sort of high performing students. Luckily, they still did well enough to pass. So they were still passing at similar rates. Right. You? Right. Uh, but their actual performance on the standardized tests that they all had to take at the end of the, the year was much lower. Uh, and so that's just, you know. One more point in the the larger body of research that uh, points to, it's hard to do virtual education really well. And so that was one particular program. And I published a paper back in 2016 uh, and these kids were going through this program like even, even a few years before that. And so things have changed really substantially. I My two and four year old are currently being distracted by some uh, online programming right now that is educational and they're, you know, trying to find the colors or whatever it is. So advances have been made, which I think is lucky uh, in that sense of that that is available to folks right now if, if you have that technology access, at least. But I mean, in the current environment, it's just going to be hard. It's hard. To, it's hard for me to take virtual training. Uh, I can't imagine like, having an eighth grader or a fourth grader or a kindergartner trying to do these things diligently. It takes a lot of investment besides just sitting them in front of a computer. like it's, it's hard for the parents. It's hard for the kids. It's hard for the teachers. So I think everyone's just trying to do the best that they can right now.
0: Well, then I, I know part of, if I understood right, that led to that district in North Carolina implementing that, that there were a lot of rural schools that didn't have the ability to say, OK, we're going to bring enough teachers in yeah. to offer Algebra 1 live in these schools. So we're going to do this. Did did you get a sense of and maybe this is too flip of a way to say it, that it was better than nothing to do something yeah. like that? Like it it can help maybe equalize right, things, even if it's not ideal.
1: That's the trade-off right like what yeah. is the alternative uh you can ask that question now or you could ask that question then uh and so actually an ongoing project that i'm working on right now hopefully doing some coding for later on today if those games can keep distracting the children at least <laughs> That's right. uh, is to uh, look at the longer term outcomes and so sure they didn't score as well on this virtual algebra test but they passed and they were right. able to take this course early. What then did that do to their kind of longer term outcomes? And if it's a choice between nothing or waiting until ninth grade and taking this virtual thing, where they maybe do a little worse, that that's one thing. I think it would it, it that paper at least clearly pointed to regular classroom for the eighth graders was better than the virtual classroom for the eighth graders. Uh, but that wasn't the kind of option for these kids. It was right. this virtual option or nothing. And so we're excited about working at that kind of longer term, like seeing, all right, do they now get to take more math classes down the road? Do they graduate at different rates? Those sort of questions. And, and so if they kind of equalized after that, then okay, this was cheaper and <laughs> they actually got to take it. So uh, there there is some, some positive there. So I'm working on that with Tom Ahn, who's my colleague out here at the Naval Postgraduate School.
0: Thinking ahead then to the time when we will be sending our kids back to schools, whenever that will be. You published a paper a couple years later in the Journal of Human Resources titled Rise and Shine The Effect of School Start Times on Academic Performance from Childhood Through Puberty. And I'm the parent of a kindergartner, and I feel like what time school starts or maybe what time it should start is going to be a hot topic of conversation in my household for the next 12 years. And I know that. Even within our district, it's not consistent. There are schools at different times that not all the elementary schools start at the same time, some are later. Does it does it really make a difference in terms of how students do in school, what time they start in the morning?
1: Absolutely, especially once they are adolescents. And so uh girls go through puberty a little bit earlier than boys, so I might start seeing that for the girls first. Uh but it consistently is shown, uh, not just in my own research, but across the board, uh, broadly points to earlier start times for especially middle schoolers and high schoolers is associated with worse academic outcomes for those students. They are biologically programmed to stay up later. So it's not like it's, oh, they're just making choices to, I don't know what kids do these days. I was going to say like... (laughs) Like watch late night television, but that's dating me very substantially. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like we, we don't know what, Ryan, right?
0: <laughs> what, yeah, I was gonna say what. What were we were doing when we were we were at, so we graduated from Notre Dame undergrad. We were about five years apart. I graduated in '02, so whatever we were doing back then and before, it holds no relevance for them now. But they're yeah. watching watching something. They're watching something, <laughs>
1: right? But right. but maybe they're watching those things. Because they are biologically inclined to stay up, and sure. certainly there can be a feedback. If you're staring at a, a bright screen, it's going to like, induce you to stay up even later. But just on their own, teenagers tend to stay up later than right. than um, adults or their younger siblings. And so, if like they're they're kind of being. Uh, forced to, or yeah forced to stay up a little bit later but then school start times are standardized uh, and forcing them to wake up then they're just not going to be getting the sleep that they need and you can see them try to make up for it on the weekends let's say uh, but they can't make up enough for it on the weekends to be performing optimally during the school week. And so that is one area where I think there's some potential for a relatively cheap way to improve academic outcomes for students by kind of shifting around those schedules. There's always pushback, though, reasonably so. Like if you move the, the high schools later, then you have to move the elementary schools earlier. Uh, which people don't want to do. They don't want to have the elementary school kids waiting for the bus in the dark, for instance. That's a totally valid concern. Right. Uh, there's worries about sports. And so sometimes the responses said, well, we'll just start the sports before school. But that kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> uh,
0: just get up earlier to do something different, things, right?
1: Like, I remember uh, I was very briefly in swimming in, I think, sixth grade. And they would have these 6 a.m. practices. I was like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. Good.
0: I found out I'm not a swimmer.
1: So I guess I'm not in into swimming. Um,
0: so, uh, wait, so did I read right on this that part of the way that you studied this, did it involve kind of like two different time zones that were kind of like butting up to each other basically to test this?
1: Yeah, this is one of the things that people are surprised about sometimes uh, that uh, Florida has two time zones in it. They forget about the panhandle. So, yes, this was using data from Florida. And one of the things that kind of the economist side of me is always looking for is natural experiments. And so this was an interesting case study just because uh, in the panhandle of Florida, schools start at about the same time, according to the clock on the wall, right? They all think that they're starting at the same time. But if you're on the eastern side of the time zone boundary, then you're uh, having a very different signal from the sun than if you are on the central side of the time zone boundary. Uh, that, that extra sunlight kind of at the end of the day would, uh, should induce you to stay up a little bit later if you're on that eastern side, get less sleep. And then our theory was that you would then uh, perform worse in school, which we do see. We can watch kids on either side of the time zone boundary. We can even watch kids move across the time zone boundary. Mm. to new schools, because we have this longitudinal data that tracks kids over time, uh, anonymously, of course, and uh, we can see that their scores are substantially lower. We're on the eastern side of the time zone boundary, even though school quality is the same, school start times are similar. Right. Uh, it's just the that the, the time zone difference was our, what we argued uh, made the difference. And if you look at national data, looking at sleep times, you can also see this sort of change where um, on the eastern side of the time zone boundary, the people tend to stay up a little bit later.
0: I mean, it's interesting. Interesting too, and I don't know what. I'm not saying this because I know the answer here in Indiana, but where Notre Dame's located in St. Joseph County, we actually are the western boundary of the Eastern Time Zone in Indiana. So you go over to Laporte County and you move to Central Time. Yeah, so we you're the are the bad side. Yes, we we are the bad because I mean in in summer here we have legitimately have light till ten at night because because yeah. we are the very tip of the Eastern Time Zone. So yeah, that's I mean the the Florida comparison there. That's really interesting. So. Now kind of bridging the educational and parenting piece, Um, this is another paper. It's forthcoming in the Journal of Human Resources. It's online right now, but forthcoming in the print. Uh, How, I mean, we hear a lot, or at least I feel like we've heard a lot over the years about uh, teenage pregnancies, teenage moms. But one thing that you did, you studied the siblings of teenage moms, which there hasn't been a lot of work done on, particularly with respect to their academic performance what what did you find there for these teen teen aunts and uncles as you talk about them in the paper that they're in the same house is a sibling a sister who has had a child in their teenage years um, but they're actually not the one who is the parent?
1: Yeah, it's a really hard question to get at because if you have if you're looking for the data that has that you want something that one can track people over time so you can see you know. How are they doing before baby showed up and how do they do after baby shows up? You need to have a big enough sample that there is, you know, teen pregnancy occurring. uh, And so you can have treated uh, and controls. And then you need to be able to connect not just the teen moms, but you have to connect the families and the family units. And so that's a fairly difficult ask. And so I was lucky enough to get access to this is, again, some Florida data that let me do all of those things. And I could see when teenagers gave birth and I could see who uh, uh, who their families were. And so I was able to track siblings over time and I could see the sort of patterns in these households. And so I connected the the what I call teen aunts and teen uncles to other folks who are very similar on similar trajectories beforehand, up to you know a year before the birth. So even before the mom got pregnant, I can see them kind of moving together on similar trends. Uh, but then once this baby shows up, I can see a sharp drop in the performance of the teen aunts and the teen uncles relative to those kind of comparators that I was, uh, uh looking at before and their outcomes diverge. That was really interesting, uh, uh, and, um, striking because you could see the drop only happened for the siblings of the teen moms once the baby shows up in the home for the teen moms themselves, the drop happens the year before, like when she's right. getting pregnant. And it's not clear, like, is something happening in her life, and then that's associated with pregnancy, or is the opposite direction. So it, it's it's not clear which direction that causality is happening for the moms, but it's something that's happening before. And then the drop in performance happens for her siblings only once the baby is in the home. And I connected that to some, or I looked at some data as well, from the American Time Use Study, and i uh, just trying to um just going to dig at this a little bit more. And it turns out especially um the younger sisters of teen moms spent a lot of time on childcare. Uh which, you know, makes sense in this context, but also is a potential explanation for why we're seeing these uh large drops in performance for these younger siblings of teen moms.
0: There's a line in the introduction to that paper where you write this and this is just this is kind of a, a methods thing that for someone who uh I actually, I fun fact, I was an economics major. I was about to say I'm clearly, <laughs> clearly not an economist. And this is about me and my economics major. But now, there's a line where you said, the finding of sibling spillover, sibling spillovers offers a warning to researchers using sibling fixed effects models. And I was just that was really interesting to me, and I felt like I, from reading it, I kind of had a, a vague appreciation of it. But I'm wondering what is a, what is a sibling fixed effects model, and how is that different from what you were doing to try and get at these dynamics in this study
1: oh a methods question I could <laughs> you didn't see that coming Kids right didn't, i i perhaps i underestimated i don't know uh <laughs> apologies so a fairly common strategy if you want to know like something happened to one sibling something didn't happen to the other you know, call them treated and control siblings you might want to like use that kind of strategy called sibling fixed effects, where you treat the treated sibling as you know that's the what happens to a person under this this treatment, whatever it is. and the control sibling is the the, the exact thing that would have happened to that person had that treatment not happened to them. Uh, but then what you need for that to be an effective, analytical strategy is for that control sibling to be really be representative of what would have happened to the treated sibling in the absence of that treatment, Uh, which can be effective in certain scenarios. But in this case, it's not effective because that control sibling in this case is not what would have happened to that teen mom, let's say, in the absence of teen pregnancy, because that uh, treatment to the teen mom is also spilling over and affecting that control sibling so that both of their performances right. dropped. And so if you tried to compare the treated and control sibling, you'd actually get a smaller difference than is really you know, affecting that teen mom because they both dropped. And so then when you compare their differences, it's going to be smaller than if the, the, the tr- a true control would have stayed higher uh, in the first place.
0: And it's almost assuming that, so with, with the treatment being the pregnancy almost assuming that somehow if you were using that fixed effects model that as the sibling in the same house you're somehow completely isolated from yeah. the impact of which clearly isn't happening because as you said especially in the case of younger sisters they're taking care of babies they're and i, I mean i really identified with you know with a 6 year and a 4 year old just thinking about a household like people being under more stress you know people are up all the time maybe the Mom and dad, who are now grandma and grandpa, don't have as much time to devote to the other siblings anymore because it's like, well, okay, we have to take care of our grandchild now. So, I mean, it makes total sense that even though you aren't the sibling having the child, your life is being changed in some pretty fundamental ways.
1: Absolutely. And there's been some great uh, sociology research looking into like just going into these homes and talking to people or observing and just spent some indication that the parents have less time to watch over and see what they're like the non-parenting younger siblings are doing or whatever else, right? There's more stress in the home. There might be more money problems. There might be all sorts of things. So the whole family is disrupted. And I'm really interested in what's happening to the whole family mm-hmm. as a larger unit rather than just the, a couple of the individuals. And so this is a nice chance to to look at that larger group. And I think it's important because if you think about like what are the costs of teen pregnancy, you can easily think, well, there's probably cost to the moms. There's probably cost to the babies. But... Current estimates uh, of like the true cost of what teen pregnancy is might not include the grandparents. They might not include the siblings, but I at least can show that there are some costs to other members of the family as well. And then when you start to consider the benefits of programs that improve teen pregnancy rates, so uh, decrease those, the, the ratio of those two things might be miscalculated if you're not including the, the larger spillover into the family.
0: Right. So I know this project has inspired one you're currently working on that examines the health and job performance of new parents. Mm -hmm. Considering we both have young kids at home, maybe this is one we don't want to hear the results of. I don't know. But what can you tell us at this point about about this research?
1: Yeah, I'm pregnant, so I really don't want to find the results (laughs) of this one. Um, I currently work for the Naval Postgraduate School. I'm an assistant professor in the econ department out here, uh, which gives me a somewhat rare opportunity to look at some DOD data Uh, that's really, really fun because it lets me look at outcomes that aren't typically available if you're looking at the civilian population because the military tracks a whole lot about these folks. And so I can see, I know where they are. I know who their families are and what's happening in their families. I know their medical records and their physical health and their job performance records are all sorts of things. Obviously, this is all anonymized, uh, but... I I can track a whole lot of important measures of uh, job performance and health performance over time. And I can also see how those things change under having a new baby uh, arrive in the home, whether you're a mom or a dad. There's also been some nice, for me, policy variation over time in terms of how much, say, maternity leave. So leave for the moms is available. Uh, It went from six to 18, down to 12 weeks in the Navy and Marines. Uh, So the Secretary of the Navy I gave got very generous and gave it up, uh, moved it up to eighteen weeks. But then the Army and uh, Air Force were still at six weeks, so the Secretary of Defense stepped in and standardized it to twelve weeks for so everybody. Twelve
0: weeks, that's right. So now,
1: now it's twelve weeks. Uh, but I get, but that is actually wonderful for me because I can see how any changes to parents differed across those policy periods. And it wasn't because you know any individual was making a particular choice; it was just this external choice thrust upon them by these policies. And so I can uh, watch. Patterns over time, and I can show, and I do show, that there are uh, substantial drops in physical performance, for instance, immediately following the birth for even the dads. Uh, so it's not just the moms. Like obviously, you'd expect there to be, you know, moms running slower for a little bit <laughs> sure. around sure. pregnancy. That's not surprising to anybody. But I can even show that uh, these very physically fit dads are running, you know, 20 seconds slower on a three mile run, which is fairly substantial for them and also has job implications for them. And so even dads are being affected by this, which is a nice opportunity to show that because I think we all know it. I think any, ask any new parent how they're doing. Like, I think, New parents know that it's hard, but this is a way to sort of quantify and see if it actually shows up in the work performance and the health of individuals. And then the next step in that research is to relate that to some support programs that are available to these parents, whether it's maternity leave. Maternity leave might help both moms and dads if they're married to an active duty spouse. There were some changes to paternity leave as well. Um, there's varying access to child care, depending on where you are in the the Country, if you're active duty, so I can look at these different policies and see if any of those help support parents, how to get them back on track or back to uh, normal, whatever that is, sooner. So that's the the next step in this. I'm really excited. We'll come well, back that, sometime and uh, <laughs> that's right. No <laughs> to do, do an another update. one exactly.
0: Yeah. So and I I would imagine too, just you know, in addition to kind of the richness of the data set of being able to access that through you know all the different branches of the military, it's also Got to be, I would think, a lot more representative population of the U.S. population, maybe as a whole, than a lot of other things would be because you're, because I know too that the goal isn't only to help military families, but it's what, you know, what are broader conclusions you can draw for all parents who are expecting children. And I would imagine that, you know, people from very different geographies, very different demographic backgrounds, that only has to add to. I don't know if this is the word, the extrapability of the research, maybe, to to other contexts?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. That is something I say all the time, whether everyone (laughs) believes me. But uh, it's nice because, you know, if you, most workers in the United States do not get paid maternity leave. This is a rare opportunity in the United States for someone with just a high school education to get like six or 18 or 12 weeks of paid maternity leave. Uh, That's unheard of. That's more common but not guaranteed among like management or higher educated sorts and so this is the context where we have both like high school graduates and people with graduate degrees or at least bachelor's degrees. So we have nice diversity uh, in terms of educational backgrounds and, and in terms of a wide variety of backgrounds, anything you, you can think of, because this is one, a really large sample. There's a whole lot of people that are uh, in the military, which is nice for, for my sake, for this analysis. Uh, but it's also helpful that when we want to dig into who does this help the most. And so I can show, for instance, with a, uh, a related paper on that, that looks at how much maternity leave is actually being used by these families, that it's really the enlisted, so the people who are mo- more likely to have a just a high school degree, uh, compared to the uh, manager types of the officers uh, who are taking up more of the leave in general. So we can start getting at some of those sort of questions that you wouldn't be able to if we just had, say, data from some random firm in the United
0: States. Right. So right.
1: And so which is which is great for me uh, and, and hopefully for just understanding the world a little bit better.
0: So I when I went to the Naval Postgraduate School website yesterday, and I was looking up some information on you before the interview, and I found you on the homepage because you just recently received a large grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And it looked like it was for a similar project. I didn't know if you were kind of expanding into some new areas with it. So Is it something new? Is it an expansion of what you've been doing? What is that project?
1: So Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has a program called Evidence for Action that tries to find programs and policies in place in various places in the United States and uh, determine how, how those help or don't help health outcomes. And so I was lucky enough to get a grant from Robert Wood Johnson to study these changes to uh, leave policy and childcare options within the DOD context. So it's definitely related uh, as I look at the health outcomes from them. And that's work with Olivia Healy, who's a graduate student over at Northwestern. She's fantastic and a full partner on this project. And I'm also lucky enough because I work where I work to have some active duty military personnel who work on it, uh, who can answer all my dumb civilian questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Captain Michael Larson uh, has been fantastic on that so far. Um, wonderful.
0: So that I mean, the last question I had was before you and I connected to do this interview. I had never never heard of the Naval Postgraduate School. Obviously, we know, especially at Notre Dame, we know the U.S. Naval Academy well, just from the you know the football rivalry It's the longest continuously played intersectional rivalry in collegiate football. But I I wasn't familiar with the Naval Postgraduate School. So what, I'm not putting you out on the, the spot to take the president of like a chancellor or anything, but what is kind of the mission or what What does the Naval Postgraduate School seek to do?
1: Not everyone has heard of us, uh, including myself a few a few years ago, but we're pretty wonderful. So our mission is to educate the officers. And so they are getting graduate degrees of some sort out here, uh, whether that's in meteorology or operations research, or we also have a school of defense management, which is where I am located. And so they're you know, focusing on logistics or what we call manpower problems, just trying to figure out who goes where uh, with the many, many people they're dealing with. So it is a unique place, but a really wonderful place. And the students are fantastic. I could not imagine Four years ago, I couldn't imagine teaching officers in the Navy and Marines, and now I cannot imagine teaching undergraduates. So uh, <laughs> they, they, they are fantastic students, and they're doing, doing great
0: work. That's awesome. Jenny Heisel, thank you so much for making time to join me today from the various spots in our homes. It, we both had coffee, so it was, kind of, it was kind of brunchy.
1: I actually had tea because I tea? Missed okay. time to my Amazon subscribe and save. <laughs> And so I currently am out of coffee, which is a real low point for me. That I'm, is a I'm, bummer. It's, it's hard. It's hard over here, but uh, I'll be all right. It's coming. I think it's coming next Monday. So we'll get through.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.